Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Armand Childers, and I have the great pleasure of hosting Zeynep Korkman today to talk about her very fresh off the press book, uh, Gendered Fortunes, Divination, Precarity, and Affect in Post-Secular Turkey, uh, that came out of Duke University Press. Welcome to the New Books Network, Zeynep. Thank you so much for having me, Armand. My pleasure. Uh, Before we get into the book, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. I'm an associate professor of gender studies at UCLA. And before that, I got my PhD in sociology from University of California, Santa Barbara, and BA in sociology from Bosch University in Istanbul, Turkey. I can say that I'm an anthropologically minded, cultural studies inspired, you know, a very interdisciplinary sociologist. But above all, I am a feminist, and my work reflects my feminist sensibilities. I have a central interest in gender. And more specifically, I work in the field of transnational feminism. So thinking about issues like gendered labor, affect, religion, from a transnational feminist perspective. And I can say that I'm most moved to work when uh, my research reflects some kind of personal trouble. And then I can situate that personal travel into the broader social context in which it's embedded. And I mean, I was fascinated by the book, as I was telling you earlier. I'm a coffee cup reader, a tarot reader. Uh, I have my coffee cup reader in Istanbul that I've been visiting anytime I'm in Istanbul in the last uh, 15 years, I should say the same oh, wow. guy uh, so I was really really excited about reading this book and I was wondering like what's the story behind the book how did you come to this topic uh-huh. thank you so much for sharing that as it's just so I'm feeling so blessed to have you as uh, my podcaster today and to imagine like maybe we kind of you know passed ways in the field while you were you know at your uh, person you know as I was doing research it's so exciting so uh, the book was inspired by this kind of curiosity and ambiguity I felt about fortune telling, and especially the new commercial forms it was taken in the first century Turkey in Istanbul. I first visited a fortune telling cafe in 2002 in my hometown Istanbul, and this was a time that I was preparing grad school applications you know, to come to the United States. And I had just taken my GRE, the graduate record exam, as part of those application processes. And I just walked out of the GRE office in Nishantashe Street, which is this fancy upscale neighborhood, right? So like, you know, upscale boutiques and restaurants and cafes, and I'm walking absentmindedly. And then I'm like, what is that sign? I'm struck, and it's different. It says free cup reading with purchase of a cup of Turkish coffee and free tarot reading with purchase of a cup of cappuccino. Hmm. So I kind of find my legs walking into the cafe, 
Oh, and I would later learn, of course, that there has been this, you know, kind of cafes popping up all around Istanbul and Turkey, where folks uh, sidestep a ban against selling commercial divination in Turkey by providing fortune telling as this kind of quote-unquote complimentary thing uh, that is sold uh, with an overpriced cup of coffee, right? And in these places, I would learn that women and younger gay men read cups and coming as clients, right? So I cannot exactly remember like what the middle-aged female fortune teller told me that day, but I remember my own feelings, my mixed feelings. So on the one hand, I'm like really feeling, really recognized, seen, validated, and she's describing some of my, you know, concerns and feelings as I'm going through, like, you know, what future holds for me? I just graduated from college. I don't know what next. But then also I was like disturbed because, and I'm kind of almost annoyed because her version of my future is so centrally around marriage, right? Getting a husband, having children. So there's that part of mixed feelings. And then there was the part where I'm like, I just felt so good. I loved how she supported me. She kind of you know, held my hand through those difficult feelings, leaving me kind of hopeful, feeling supported. But then I also felt like almost guilty and bad that I was purchasing this intimate encounter from a poorly compensated, what I imagined, and I was right, you know, women without any reciprocity in terms of like emotional support or the intimacy, right? So there was that kind of complicated feeling part. And finally, I had this conflicted feelings about like my own enjoyment of this. I'm like, oh, I love this. I'm so drawn into it. But I'm also like feeling uneasy about my desire and pleasure because I'm like, oh, this is too superstitious for my secular sensibilities. <laughs> and it's just way too normatively feminine for my feminist sensibilities. So I had like these mixed feelings, uh, which are the very, you know, motivation and the basis that the book research is dependent upon. And in the book, I try to untangle the broader context of those mixed personal feelings. And I mean, like they come together very, I mean, the mixed feelings you're talking about come together very well in the kind of theoretical framework of the book as well. Um, and I mean, like, uh, you also hint at this new age life coaching scene that coexists with the coffee cup reading business. Uh, how do you see all of this in conjunction with post-secularity in Turkey? As you were also saying, like your secular sensi- sensibilities are not, are kind of disturbed in the process. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Exactly. Yeah. So thank you so much. So I, let me allow to answer this question a bit autobiographically. So I grew up in 1980s Turkey, and I was raised by my secularist grandparents, or, you know, like first-generation Republican school teachers of everything, right? So they really believe in the promises of the secular nation, and they were Muslim, and and also, like, they're a product of this era of 20s and 30s in Turkey, which is exactly when the Secularist Republic have criminalized fortune tellers in the first place. And they also kind of, you know, they inherited the Secularist kind of looking away from religion. We are Muslim, but whatever. 
And also they look down upon kind of things that they deem too traditional or superstitious, like religious ceremonies or healings, whatnot. And then I was also raised by their daughter, my mom, who was a leftist feminist and also inherited those secular sensibilities. So she also kind of, you know, would rather not engage with any of those irrationalities, like including fortune telling. And then I was raised to embody this kind of secular modern femininity that is supposedly, you know, all disinvested from all those things. But then also I couldn't help but remember like vaguely my grandmother getting together with her female friends, reading each other's cups, or like how my family members would adorn me with like, you know, evil eye charms, which I still wear. And then, or like how my mom's like feminist friends couldn't stop talking about horoscopes. Right? So the secular habitus was that was supposedly you know disinvested from all these but was amply you know populated by these what i can call like gendered or feminized quote-unquote superstitions and uh, so this is kind of my early childhood and then 80s was of course the time of post-queera and kind of the inflection of uh, of Islam as this into official state ideology as this antidote to uh, leftist mobilization in the country. And then comes 1990s, where we see Islam as this potent and popular political idiom of political organizing. And I'm going to, you know, middle school, high school, starting college at this time. So I had my like best friend and she wore a headscarf all the way to the street of our school and then she would take it off because it's banned and also she didn't want everyone to see her including the teachers right and then she would put it back on as we walked towards one of each other's homes and then we would you know chat and maybe you know do a reading talk about like what we're gonna be like who we're gonna end up with like love sex and like how to navigate like life as young people with some autonomy right I remember we were talking about one day, or repeatedly, I think, this bestseller, feminist bestseller in Turkey, Kadın Nadiyok by Dugesena, which is for American listeners. This kind of uh, similar to Betty Friedman's The Problem That Has No Name. And, you know, so, and then I started college, going to Boston University in 1994, and I had these, you know, fellow female students who were agitating and protesting for their right to wear their band has scarves to the school. So I couldn't help but register something about that formula of being a modern woman was changing in Turkey, right? And that something was about the relationship between religion, secularism, and femininity very much. And then came 2000s, I did end up at a, a grad program in the United States, as the fortune teller uh, had predicted <laughs> that I would end up at Pro. And then, <laughs> I must say that right now. And then, uh, and I'm going back to Turkey every summer or for research, and all my secularist relatives and friends are now like, really anxious, you know, growing really anxious. Those Islamists, they're going to, you know, like keep us all home, make us fear veils. We won't be anything but moms and wives. We better do something, you know, come with us to Republic marches or, you know, protest. 
And there I am, you know, kind of trying to tell them, yeah, you know, secularism was no haven for women either. So I have this kind of, you know, feminist critic of that. And this is right around those times, right? Early 2000s, 2002 is the year when the very first fortune telling cafe had opened in Istanbul and the year AKP was formed. So then my secularist uh, relatives and friends are starting to go to those cafes, right? To assuage those kind of anxieties uh, by people, you know, who were criminalized and who are still criminalized by that secularist project that they are now mourning the demise of. And by the 2010s, of course, AKP is kind of stepping back from out of gender equality policies, really amping up kind of repression of feminist LGBT voices, pushing this kind of so-called Turkish family values very aggressively. And I'm alarmed at this point as a feminist. And women's unemployment, especially young women, is on the rise. And my secularist relatives and friends at this point are really into this uh, what you might call spirituality or supernatural, but of the brands that do not sound Islamic, right? So enter <laughs> like Reiki, uh, you know, cup reading, sterile, yoga, you know, you name it. And, uh, and I'm part of that scene too, right? Not to kind of exclude myself into some place of, you know, outside observer. And they are kind of uh, engaging with those secular anxieties and all the anxieties of living in 2010s Turkey through these practices. So in the book, I argue that these broad changes that has been happening over the last few decades in Turkey in terms of religion and secularism create what I called a post-secular condition, a time and place where we cannot take for granted the secular anymore. Right, it's no longer unquestioned. And a lot of academics have been addressing this phenomenon, but mostly on the political level. So the rise of Islamist actors, the loss of hegemony of secularism, nostalgia for secularism. And for folks who have been thinking about this in gender terms, the focus have been almost exclusively on veiled women. But secular and secularist women have remained invisible, taken for granted. Uh, to some extent, because they are the kind of normative subject of secularism, right? And the normative subjects often remain invisible, such as white, such as men, right? Uh, but to me, however, growing with these kind of feminist, critical, secular sensibilities from this era, how secular and secularist women engage with the supernatural and how they articulated and uh, process their secular anxieties outside the political realm was really interesting. And I was really drawn to fortune-telling cafes as I felt they provided an excellent window to explore some of these issues around post-secularism. I mean, it's, the story you're telling is fascinating. Also, like the tensions you you talk about, like um, how the how the coup and the military kind of are th- usually thought of this um, kind of military force of secularism, whereas 
as you as you just mentioned, like what we know as like Turkish Islam synthesis in Turkey, is thanks to the coup of the nineteen eighty, and mm-hmm. on the other side, there's this secularists who are looking for different ways of engaging with the supernatural that are not Islamic sounding or like Islamic looking, uh, and I mean. I'm, you've been talking about gender and sexuality already, but I, I, I was wondering if you can parse out that connection to the futures or, or the uh, why it is related to gender and sexuality, this pro, uh, practices of uh, fortune telling. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for that question. If there is one true line of the book, it is definitely gender and sexuality. The book's subjects are gender and sexual minorities, and the book is centrally about how they mobilize divinations to navigate their confounded vulnerabilities and anxieties, right? So in the book, I argue that divination and coffee cup readings in particular are above all a genre of femininity. And with this, I mean that the cup readings as a genre circulate these scenes of femininity, right? So partners cheating, uh, you know, boyfriends to call, uh, pregnancies lost, etc., etc. So they circulate these scenes in which these gender tops and anxieties are generated. And in doing so, uh, fortune tellers create this landscape of femininity made of seemingly banal, but, you know, deeply felt hopes and fears. And as the clients or the recipient of the fortune telling sessions recognize themselves in what is being said, right, so to speak, see themselves in the cup, they get interpolated as feminized subjects, as the subject of those feelings. And I would come to understand this, uh, understand fortune telling as a feminized genre, as I get, you know, reading after reading after reading in the field. And I felt both really drawn in, but also felt really claustrophobic in these scenarios, right? So there is this, you know, repeated scenario of, or the repeated prediction that I would have twin boys which kind of, you know, implied that I was getting a little too old, that I was still not sporting a wedding ring, I was child-free, so I would probably end up with fertile to treatments, which was becoming kind of a staple for middle classes, you know, around me in Turkey, so I'm like, oh, okay, this again. Or the multiple romantic features I was predicted to have had already endured, and would endure in search of a husband. And, you know, kind of speaking, accurately to that kind of new romantic market where women, young women were both supposed to kind of choose husbands, kind of flirt around, right? But then also get settled and marry at a suitable age before it's too late. So, you know, all of this and more, it all felt like femininity. And to me, as a cisgender, hetero kind of femme woman, and as a feminist, it felt like both charming and suffocating in equal measure, right? <laughs> uh, and importantly, saying that I want to emphasize that I like in the book, I try to make really clear that these affective investments in femininity are not some automatic function of some sex gender category. So I argue that femininity hails more than women, it hails 
people who are subjectified and thus feminized in heteropatriarchal hierarchies that includes age, gender, and sexuality. So for this reason, divinations as clients and workers attract young and gay men in addition to, you know, cis and trans women and hetero and queer women. And even as divinations kind of uh, repeatedly uh, circulate these heteronormative scenarios, they also can make room and regularly do make room for non-heteronormative desires for departures and, you know, uh, diversions from heteronormativity. So you'll have a reader who will showing you kind of a tarot card with the same sex category of the client as their potential romantic interest, right? Or you'll have someone kind of using uh, personal pronouns which are not gendered in Turkish, kind of, you know, and not identifying explicitly uh, the gender of the romantic interest or explicitly speaking about non-alternative desires in divination. And of course, all of this is happening this, uh, in 2000s Turkey, where not only fortune-telling cafes are proliferating, but uh, feminist and queer movements have been on the rise, right? And in the first decade of 2000s, we have also the EU harmonization process, some gender equality measures introduced at that point by none other than the AKP. And then fast forward to 2010s, and you have this whole state apparatus really crushing down on those moments, feminist and queer moments, uh, pushing those family values, etc., very aggressively. In 2013 is when the Gezi uprisings have happened, and you know, feminists and LGBTQ activists were really at the forefront collectively reclaiming their futures in the public sphere in an oppositional political language. And the rest of the 2010s have been crushing waves of political violence, right? Mass criminalization. And notwithstanding the resilience of these movements, they have been truly also suppressed, right? So it, it's in such a context that my book shows how women and young and gay men come together Kind of away from the political spotlight, right? Away from the mainstream public sphere to express their hopes and anxieties about their futures in the company of each other in the language of divination and use divination to create these feminist publics where they can manage their intimate lives, but away from the gaze of their families, their communities, and of the government, all of which are staking claims to control those lives. So... Then when I take gender and sexuality into central focus, as I do in the book, uh, I get to show not only how these practices of divination surface feminized affects, feminized subjects and sociabilities, but also how thinking about uh, gender and sexuality centrally can show us the ways in which feminized subjects navigate broader social formations, whether it's gender conservatism, authoritarianism, uh, post-secularism, or neoliberalism. I mean, while you end on the neoliberalism, I mean, why... I mean, I thought about at some point working on astrology and tarot for my dissertation, then I kind of deferred that idea and what was really interesting to me is that was that was that i mean we're constantly in a kind of state of crisis in the world right now i feel 
And to me, at least, what tarot and astrology and maybe coffee cup reading as well gave was kind of a sense of security within within the world of crisis. And um, so I was wondering then how, I mean, thinking about neoliberalism as a kind of perpetuation of crisis, how does neoliberalism play into this dynamic? Uh-huh. Yeah, what you say it is so insightful and it is definitely uh, part of the picture uh, or part of my argument in the book about the relation between donation and neoliberalism. And I'm thinking about this relation kind of from two ends, both supply and demands at ends of the donation economy. So on the supply end, the supply of workers, right? Uh, fortune telling provides in 2000s Turkey this precious opportunity to make a living, even though it's uh, criminalized, informal, flexible, poorly paid, low status, stigmatized, because the last few decades of uh, neoliberalization have rendered labor precarity as the norm, especially for younger people and for female workers. So in that sense, neoliberalization creates the supply of workers, but also on the supply side too, and that's kind of more uh, getting to what you're talking about. You have these secular, you know, supposedly middle-class clients, but they're also precarious uh, laborers in the sense that they have to endure cycle after cycle of underemployment, unemployment, economic crisis after economic crisis, you know, downturn after bankruptcy. So they have to be these kind of, they are under the pressures of the demand for being these neoliberal subjects who continuously are anticipating the next unemployment or next crisis, right, in their lives, who have to keep reinventing, being self-entrepreneurial, self-improving, and that takes a lot of emotional refueling to get going, keep to keep going like that, right? So these anxieties of the neoliberal self, right, that has to live, as you beautifully put, with like in this kind of ongoing crisis mode, are suited then by coffee cup readings and this whole other host of new age practices like energy healings and that are part of this broader neoliberal therapeutic scene that are designed to keep these neoliberal subjects going. So in that sense, then I argue uh, divination practices make neoliberal precarity relatively inhabitable, livable, both by providing a way to make a living and also by helping process the affective experiences of precarity. So in that sense, the book uh, seeks to provide a window into neoliberalism, uh, both from the perspective of new forms of labor precarity it produces, but also from the perspective of the affective formations of neoliberalism itself and how people navigate those. Yeah, that I mean that hit a bit closer to home than I hoped it would. <laughs> and, and then I mean this also goes into this question of like effective labor that you also talk prominently in the book. Uh, how does effective labor play into all of these different stories? I mean, seemingly different stories that come together in your field. Uh-huh. 
I just, yeah, I just want to respond first to your comment that it hits closer to home. Uh, you know, it might be perhaps because as I was, you know, writing the book initially, I was also kind of in a, that precarious labor market is very much part of academia right now. And we as academics uh, are also kind of are under this immense pressure to continue to self-improve, self-invent, self-brand, and kind of, and it takes so much emotional refueling, right? It takes so much effective work to kind of to stay on it and to keep going under such a, uh, in such a context. So uh, um, as you asked, affect the labor place really centrally in these stories of divination because divination is affective slash emotional work. Uh, and when I say that by the affective dimension, I'm meaning those, I'm referring to those unstructured, precognitive, embodied intensities uh, that underlie the felt states and of emotional experience. And by the emotional dimension, I'm referring to those more culturally prescribed, socially articulated ways of identifying, managing, displaying, talking about emotions. And the readers, I argue, work on both of these levels, right? So to begin with, they need to conjure this intense, amorphous, anticipatory atmosphere, right? Like this affective interpersonal space and in that intensity only they get to feel people and get to make people feel and feel strongly whatever it is they're going to feel right and then they also narrate different scenarios with different emotional overtones so like a sad scene of loss a helpful scene of arrival etc and these scenarios are touching right because of this affective intensity and attunement that happens in the process so to describe this kind of dual work of both inciting and expressing culturally meaningful emotions, but also at the same time attuning interpersonally to someone else and to all the underlying affective intensities in the room, so to speak, I coined the term feeling labor in the book. And the term is inspired very much by the fortune tellers themselves because whenever I would ask, it is this habitual task, how do you know? But you know, right? How do you predict? They would answer, many of them, overwhelming majority, I feel it. Uh, so that's why also I highlight feeling great as a mode of labor here. And in the book, I show how these feeling labors were previously mostly exchanged in the private sphere with by women, for women, uh, in neighborhood gatherings, family gatherings, amongst friends, uh, in reciprocal embedded social relations. And now they are truly commercialized and taken into market. They take place among people divided by economic privilege and they depend upon capitalist labor exploitation, right, in uh, neoliberal times. Importantly, though, I also argue that affect, uh, feeling labors of divination produce just more than just profits and exploitation. I also show that they produce these feminized publics, right, that I was just talking about, 
where women and young and gay men come together, they get to explore their hopes and disappointments in the company of each other. And importantly, in these spaces, um, the fortune teller cannot gossip about you. I mean, they can tell all they want, but they don't know the people who know you. So it's not effective gossip, right? So that gives really precious comfort and safety to people who can then explore their intimate lives and feelings uh, from a safe distance, from the family, from the community, from the political public sphere, all those places where their private lives are under scrutiny and being disciplined and controlled. So I argue that uh, then feeling labors are really crucial for gender and sexual minorities in that way. And in the book, I'm uh, further inspired to think about feeling itself as a broader analytic, as something that might be of value both methodologically as in orienting to feeling in research, right? And epistemologically as in kind of uh, centering it as an analytic. And I used feeling more narrowly to think about the subterranean ways of registering at the affective level those broader social formations. So I ask, when I'm thinking with feeling, I get to ask questions like, how does it feel to be a secular Muslim uh, young woman or gay man who is living in this post-secular condition? How does it feel to perform precarious labor as a gender and sexual minority subject? How does it feel to find this feminized, precious, anonymous intimacy in an otherwise default public sphere? So this, in this broader way, feeling uh, gives us a way to attune to how people navigate those broader social formations, how they feel their way into, through, and away from those. And in uh, thinking about feeling in this expansive way, I'm inspired, obviously, by the fortune tellers. <laughs> and I mean, like, what you were saying is just amazing to me because um, you're talking about an anonymity that comes to protect the person going to a fortune teller uh, and, like, almost empower them to kind of uh, be in the presence of a fortune teller. But usually, I mean, that anonymity is provided, I mean, because I also read my friends' coffee cups and I can gossip about them to other friends. Uh, but that, that that anonymity then is like uh, provided by the exchange of money, basically, which is precisely what Marx said about what money does is to sever these like bonds between people. And you're showing that in the book that this kind of severing uh, of the social bonds actually comes to empower some people while maybe making others more precarious under the conditions of the neoliberal conditions of uh, the fortune tellers themselves. Definitely, and that is definitely the central contradiction of the story that I'm telling in the book. Thank you so much for putting it so brilliantly. Um, and I mean, what's next for you? What what are you working on nowadays? Yeah, thank you, thank you, ask for asking that. Uh, so the book has been in the making for a long time, 
And during that time, I have been working on kind of several things simultaneously. So firstly, during writing the book on this effective lives of gender and secularism, I have also been living in the United States in post 9-11 United States as an immigrant woman from a Muslim Middle Eastern country. So as a feminist scholar, I felt compelled to understand, and not just understand, but also build feminist solidarity against anti-Muslim racism. So uh, uh, in that, uh, for that work, I have recently in 2021, it came out, I co-edited issue with my colleague here at UCLA with Sharon Razak on transnational feminist responses to anti-Muslim racism. And in this vein, I've been really closely thinking about challenges of both scholarship of act and activism when we try to understand and build solidarity across different contexts where gender politics of secularism and religion may unfold in interrelated but different ways. So, for example, U.S. and Turkey, right, kind of my two worlds. And, for example, I've been thinking about how AKP has been able to uh, sell its pseudo-critique of anti-Muslim racism, or we are the black Turks, we are the oppressed Muslims, and we are oppressed, you know, representing them, so being solidarity with us, and how some, you know, progressive and feminist politicians and scholars in the U- who are based in the U.S. right uh, kind of fell into that. So I just two days ago, an article that where I'm discussing kind of these issues has came out. Uh, it's called uh, "Mistranslations of Anti-Muslim Racism." So this is one uh, one leg of the kind of uh, the ongoing uh, thinking I've been doing post book, and secondly. Uh, in the same time that I've been writing the book, I have also been living as a critical scholar from Turkey who has been enduring the long legacy of criminalization of scholars from Turkey, right, by the state, which has taken new and intensified forms under AKP. So I was one of the 2000 academics for peace. We are a group of academics who signed a peace petition in 2016 to ask the government to resume the peace talks with Turkey's Kurdish scale organization and were criminalized and targeted in Massey for supporting so-called terrorists and thus, you know, by extension, being terrorists. And in this context, again, and given the relative privilege of being in the, located in the U.S. academia, I've been thinking about how to understand this and how to push back, how to be in solidarity. And I've been thinking about especially transnational feminist solidarity around this. I published something, another article thinking about academia as a network of transnational solidarity in this context. So uh, then in both cases, I've been thinking about this transnational solidarity. And finally, the third leg of my efforts since the book has been this, uh, third part has been this new research that I'm just kind of, you know, uh, checking out this feeling that the field, yeah, where I'm continuing my inquiry into the intersections of gender, affect, labor, religion, and secularism, but now with a focus on feminist solidarity with refugee and immigrant women in Turkey. 
So I've been thinking about this affective and laborious process through which Turkish feminists and Syrian refugees in particular are forging solidarity through the differences of, you know, race and ethnicity, religion and sectarian differences, linguistic uh, you know, and economic differences. Uh, and uh, these three projects come together for me. So the first one on the gender politics of Islam and anti-Muslim racism, second on the repression of critical academics, and third on the oppression of immigrant and refugee peoples in Turkey. They all share this common theme of how to be in solidarity, especially of transnational feminist kind, and what kind of laborious, affective work it takes to build such solidarity, to strive toward that. So I'm, uh, you know, currently working on bringing these three strands together in a book tentatively titled Feelings That Move, Affective Politics of Transnational Feminist Solidarity, and thinking about the interplay of gender, labor, affect, and politics in this context of, you know, discontents of feminist solidarity with Muslims, with quote-unquote terrorists, with refugees. Uh, I really want to understand, not just because of academic reasons, but also because I want to, you know, be part of people who are trying to change the world, right? I want to understand how people mobilize these affective flaws of concern, affinity, care, alongside, of course, those material flaws like money, advocacy, right? Uh, and how they do that under shadow of war, displacement, criminalization, structural violence, sexual violence. And I feel this is really essential in a world where we are, you know, navigating this transnational world, where nativists, racist, you know, homophobic, transphobic, misogynist, feelings are strong to embolden these you know oppressive regimes around the world so how do we challenge these feelings and more importantly how do we cultivate other more equitable less violent if you will ways of relating to each other of feeling each other and of course obviously in this question again i'm inspired by uh, divination as a, a form of feeling labor Oh, I mean, I look forward to reading this book. <laughs> that <laughs> well, might thank be you so much, Zainab, for joining us. It was thank such a you. pleasure talking to you. Uh, and we've been talking about Zainab Korkman's new book, Gendered Fortunes, Divination, Precarity, and Affect in Post-Secular Turkey that came out of Duke University Press. Um, this is New Books Network. My name is Arman Childers. Until next time.